my fellow investors, welcome back to another episode of the New Car Investor channel where we talk about stocks, share insights and debate. Hope you're all doing great today. An awesome update to share. Um, and if you follow me on Twitter, then of course you already know this, but I did start a new job this week. So I just completed my first week there. Really, really good. Only nice things to say so far, you know, really love the team. And of course it helps that it's a company whose product I've been a fan of for my entire life. So yeah, very excited for this position, excited to keep growing. And, you know, uh, this isn't something that I really talk about much in this podcast. I'm very focused on the business, right? Understanding your stocks. But it's true that a big part of investing, of course, is increasing your income so that you're able to invest more and keep that compounding going. And so, of course, I'm also very happy about this because it is also uh, an increase in income. So overall, very, very satisfied, very excited. And yeah, I'm hyped for what the future holds with this. Before we get started, I would like to remind you, if you like this podcast, make sure that you give us a five-star rating on Spotify or on Apple, or of course, subscribe on YouTube. And of course, before we delve into some of these stocks, I do want to remind you that nothing I say in this podcast is financial advice. In fact, it's only entertainment. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you what I do. But I have screwed up a lot in the past, and I'm sure I'll continue to do that as I continue to learn. So of course, always do your own research. All right, first item on our agenda today, the latest ads to the portfolio. Uh, very, very excited for this one. I've reflected on it for a long time and I have decided this is really going to be a meaningful portion of the portfolio, or at least that's the plan <laughs> for the long term. But of course, this buy is the ETF SCHD, that is the Schwab US Dividend Equity ETF. Why am I such a fan of SCHD? I have spoken about it before because as you know, I was already owning it, but it's really important to reaffirm here. When you buy an ETF, you're not buying a stock. You're actually buying a strategy, right? It's important when you invest to not be married to stocks, or at least not too much, because of course things can change, right? If you look at the S&P 500, you look at the top five in the index, and you look at every decade, you'll see that there's been a lot of changes, for example, right? There used to be a time when IBM was huge or when General Electric was huge, and now I, I don't think either of them are even in the top 20, right? Uh, and so SCHD here, same thing. Now, why am I such a fan? Let's look at SCHD again, kind of on a high-level overview here. What's the goal of this fund? Their goal is to track the total return of the Dow Jones US Dividend 100 index. So that is the index that they are just basically mimicking and all their holdings in there are basically just the ones of that index. Uh, now some highlights from their website. It is a low cost fund. Uh, the management fee is 0.06%, uh, which is a very low expense actually for an ETF, so that's good. Um, and the goal of this fund is to have an index of companies that have high quality and sustainable dividends. So these are companies that have, uh, you know, a lot of strength uh, financially and that are able to have a good dividend yield already, but that also have a track record of increasing that dividend over time. Now, if you go into Dow Jones website, you can actually um, see, look under the hood and see the methodology for actually creating this index, right? So first, there are some screens that the stock needs to pass, such as 10 consecutive years of dividend payments, for example, to make sure that this company actually can pay them sustainably. Once all the stocks pass all the screens, and there are other screens too, once all of those are passed, there are actually um, four main metrics. So the first one is free cash flow to total debt. 
So the annual net cash flow from operating activities divided by the total debt. And of course, companies with zero total debt are ranked first. The second is return on equity. The third is the dividend yield. And the fourth is the five-year dividend growth rate. All of those rankings are equal weighted. It creates a score. And then, of course, the securities are ranked based on that score. The 100 top-ranked stocks by the score are added into this index. The stocks in the index are weighted quarterly uh, and they are capped. So no single stock can actually be more than 4% of the index and no single industry or sector can be more than 25% of the index. So that ensures that you actually have a pretty diversified lot. You don't have this crazy concentration that we're seeing, for example, in the S&P 500. Tech is a huge part, mainly because of Apple, Microsoft, Google, Meta, uh, and Amazon, right? They make up a huge portion of it. So that is not allowed within the SCHD uh, index that can't happen and the result of this methodology is essentially a cocktail of the strongest companies in america and so basically in the world we have companies in the top 10 that i highly respect like broadcom like cisco like pepsi coca-cola home depot these are legendary companies that will endure most likely right but what i love so much about this like i said is that sometimes as an investor you get married to a stock right you just cannot extricate yourself and your identity from owning a specific stock that you like. But here's the thing, numbers don't lie. And if at some point one of those companies I just mentioned were to, for whatever reason, uh, lose their dominance and just not be good companies anymore, they would get kicked out of the index and replaced by the, the next best company, right? And that's the whole point of this. Sometimes as an individual investor buying individual stocks, it's very hard to say goodbye. You don't really want to. But here in this index, it just does it for you. Now, that is why I like SCHD in general. But now I have to tell you why I think it's a good fit within my portfolio is I believe it would be a very good counterweight to my S&P 500 position, which is now quite large. It's my second largest holding. Here's the thing. A lost decade is possible. It is possible that the S&P kind of just doesn't really move and stagnates for a while, maybe for the next 10 years. I don't know if that'll happen, but it's possible. Now, the S&P 500 is very much, not fully, but very much populated by a lot of growth stories. We're talking stocks like Tesla, right? These almost meme-like stocks that grow very much, sometimes maybe a bit too much, and don't pay a dividend. What we also know is that it's very rare for every industry or every type of company to do well at the same time. Generally, you get growth stocks that do well for a bit, and then you get value stocks that do well. And then you kind of have this balance that keeps going up and down, right? Now, in my mind, at least, the S&P 500 is a bit more growth-oriented, at least relative to SCHD. And SCHD is more value-oriented with more dividends, right? So for me, if the S&P 500 were to underperform, let's say, the next five years, I would expect SCHD to pick up the slack in the portfolio and be better. SCHD would provide dividends, which I could use to actually buy more of the S&P, for example. And a final reason, of course, why I like SCHD is, um, and perhaps it's a, a, a bit of dash of self-awareness and humility on my part, but I just think the US is so dynamic, it's so big, I don't even live there, I don't know what's going on over there, and I, I don't trust my ability as a stock picker to really be able to select all the best stocks all the time. I think I could, perhaps for a short period of time, but certainly not... Uh, you know, beat the market for 10 years or 20 years in a row, right? So that's why I think having an ETF like this will probably be very good for me, especially for a core holding that I'd like to keep for decades, literally. 
uh, I think SCHD will fill that role very well as a complement to the S&P 500. And I really want to focus my US buys on those two ETFs moving forward. So anyway, SCHD is now officially my 10th largest holding in the portfolio, and I expect it to creep into the top five, maybe by the end of the year, or perhaps early next year. We'll see, but yes. Our second item on the agenda also brings me a lot of joy, as it probably does to you if you are a fellow shareholder, but my friends, Brookfield Corporation. Oh my gosh, I am still digesting that investor day that happened. If you didn't know about this, on September 12th, they had this day where basically, you know, some of the top shareholders can attend in New York and management does a very big presentation of the business, kind of what, what are the things that happened over the year and what is the five-year plan. It's kind of like Warren Buffett's uh, annual shareholders meeting in Omaha, which is very famous where you see him drink his can of Coke and have his candy. It's kind of like that, but the Brookfield version. I have only watched the Brookfield Corporation part yet. I haven't seen the asset management part uh, because it, all of those things are very long. But all I can say first is that I am very impressed and I don't think I've ever been so confident about this company and of course about my investment in it. Uh, I think the long-term prospects are excellent. They are obviously in excellent shape and their plan for the future is quite extraordinary. Now, if you are a shareholder or just curious about this company, uh, I highly recommend that you watch that full presentation. But if not, I am actually going to do a very quick review now. So I'm actually going to go over the slides and I'll just tell you what the parts that I thought were notable uh, from that investor day here for the Brookfield Corporation side. And we'll do the asset management probably another time. So the first part that I found quite interesting and kind of crazy, to be honest, is they estimate their net asset value per share to be $74 US. For reference, currently, Brookfield Corporation trades at $36 US. So they think it trades at a very deep discount to what it's actually worth. For reference, the net asset value here would be if they just decided to like sell everything that they own and just like not make the business exist anymore, it, you would get $74, according to them at least. They believe that within five years, uh, by 2028, the net asset value per share should jump to 163 US dollars. That is like four or five times what it is now. And so as a result, according to them at least, people who buy it now have a significant margin of safety. Now I have to say this is something to be extremely careful of in general with uh, management doing these types of presentations and giving uh, predictions like this. Remember again, this is the net asset value per share, but that is not the stock price. So they're not saying the stock price on the market will be that amount. They are just saying that the business in their view will be worth that. I'm just pointing that out because sometimes people, investors get carried away, they get excited. They're like, oh my God, this is the return I'm gonna make. You may not make that return. This matters if you care about the intrinsic value of the business. Another notable point here, of course, is sometimes managers uh, of various companies, they will make these predictions, right? But you always have to look at what they do with their own money, right? I'm very pleased to say that when it comes to Brookfield, the insiders for the whole year, they've been really buying and accumulating shares. Bruce Flatt, the CEO, owns billions worth of Brookfield and he keeps buying. He sold some of the asset manager to actually put it 
uh, into the corporation. So clearly, you know, Bruce Flatt, I think, knows more about Brookfield than I do, and he is buying more of it than I am. So that's encouraging. They then reiterate that Brookfield, uh, the corporation, is at the heart of everything that they do. And that is where they basically get to capture all of the value of the entire Brookfield empire, right? So they have a nice little graph that shows BN in the middle. Then they have asset management, insurance solutions, and operating businesses on the side. But really with BN, you get this chance of a $140 billion perpetual capital base that's there. So you get chance for capital appreciation. You get this stable and growing annual cash flow right now predicted for $5 billion, but they're going to increase that over time, right? They also get to reinvest this cash because, of course, BN holds most of the money. They don't pay all of it out as dividends, so they get to reinvest and recycle some of these assets. And then you also get the chance to capture the strategic growth. So that is when, for example, they say they build their next global champion. So the most recent ones was the insurance company, but they've had ones before too, like the infrastructure and the renewable, right? So if you own BN, you get the chance to have all of that. Currently, they have over $800 billion in assets under management, uh, $440 billion worth it being fee-bearing capital. That means they get fees on that $440 billion worth of assets. And they are planning to grow it to over a trillion also within that five-year plan. I've seen that fee-bearing capital grow tremendously since I first started investing in them in 2019. So I fully believe they're actually going to achieve that. Another kind of tremendous number here, just to put it into perspective, they estimate to generate around $45 billion of free cash flow in the next five years. Free cash flow is not the same as profit and is not the same as revenue. Free cash flow is money after all your expenses that you can basically just do whatever you want with it. You want to buy some new stuff, buy a new business, you want to do stock buybacks, you want to pay dividends, whatever. That is the free cash flow. For reference, their market cap, by the way, all the figures are in US dollars here, just in case you didn't know. Their market cap is around $59 billion as I speak. So more than half of their entire market cap within the next five years, they'll just have in free cash flow. Of course, it's not like they're going to put all of that towards buybacks. I estimate it won't be a lot actually uh, because they prefer to reinvest in their businesses and buy other ones but still that is a really impressive number the CFO Nick Goodman also did a very good presentation of their actual financial situation and their projections a highlight here was they did note that they are ahead of their five-year plan that they established in 2019 they had predicted around $17.8 billion in free cash flow, and we're at $18.3 billion. And that is, my friends, remember, with the pandemic, which they didn't know would happen. So even with that, they are ahead of what they had planned originally. They then shifted to explaining a bit about the asset management business. Um, so something very important to understand is carried interest. That is the share of the profit that they take after they're done with their funds. So what they'll do, they'll take 100 million or 100 billion, whatever amount of money from institutions and so on. They'll invest it somewhere in a fund for maybe 10 years. And then at the end, they'll give people their share. And then the share that they take for themselves, that is the carried interest. So in 2018, at that investor day, they had predicted within five years to generate about 3.1 billion in realized carried interest and here again we're way above they're at 4.8 billion which is insane so here again they are predicting a very very large uh, significant amount of carry over the next few years they call it their hidden jewel in plain sight which is not recorded in the accounts and he also uh, explains really it's not a matter of if they'll get the carried it's just a when when those funds close down they take the money and it's converted into cash 
Another very welcome highlight from the presentation, in my opinion, is they address the elephant of the room, which for this whole year basically has been real estate. We know obviously that with rising rates, most real estate uh, assets were under a lot of pressure, not just for Brookfield, but just in general, right, across the world. Uh, and they really emphasize the fact again. So this is the story that they've they've been saying, right? But a tale of two cities, how the commodity kind of office, for example, is in big trouble. Those are the office spaces kind of in a city that not a lot of people want to move to. Not a lot of company headquarters are. And basically office space that doesn't need to exist. That is the part that is struggling. But then they emphasize that they own some of the most premium assets. And here I must actually agree. So they gave us a table here uh, in a presentation, which you can see showing their best assets that they have those would include brookfield place in toronto which i actually worked in so i know this office area very well uh always packed full of people i've seen the difference uh from during pandemic and, and compared to now where it's full of people they also mentioned canary wharf which it was a pleasure actually going there uh in london uh over the summer and i met my cousin there we had dinner with my wife's friends over there it was fully packed uh so when you see those assets and you see the occupancy rates that are quite high you realize of course what they're saying is true, right? The carnage in real estate is not uniform. It's not everywhere. It's a mix. And the other big strength for Brookfield is that they are perpetual owners. So they don't have time limits for how long do they have to hold on to a certain asset until they need to get rid of it, right? They can hold on to it for as long as it takes. If interest rates go up, at some point, they'll probably level off or at least start coming down. But rents can be increased forever. So as long as Brookfield as a whole has the balance sheets to withstand some of these external shocks that we're seeing, like a big recession, as long as they can withstand it, then they can hold on to that real estate. They're okay with it underperforming for maybe five years, but then firing off on all cylinders in the next five years when things pick up, right? So after hearing that whole section, and I highly recommend you listen to it, I was also a little more confident in the real estate uh, segment for Brookfield. So the final big highlight of this Brookfield Corporation presentation was when Sachin Shah, the CEO of Brookfield's insurance solution segment, uh, appeared and basically presented that whole segment. Uh, it's clear that the Brookfield team is extremely bullish on insurance. Now, as you may or may not know, Brookfield Reinsurance is the latest spin-off. Uh, if you don't include the asset management, right? They didn't have an insurance business until just a couple of years ago when they decided to get into it. And it's now growing very, very fast. Uh, with their acquisition of American Equity, which has been announced and should be closing soon, they should be reaching $100 billion in assets under management. Now, the majority of Brookfield's insurance operations is actually firstly concentrated in America, and secondly, it's concentrated in retirement products. So while it is complicated, they try to dumb it down as much as possible and actually compare it to GICs. And uh, in again, in simplified explanation, they said with this $100 billion uh, that they uh, have that they can play around with, the goal here is to have a 4% cost, and the average cost is underneath 4% currently, but target a 6% or more investment yield, and basically the distributable earnings would be the difference. So if they have $100 billion uh, under management, they have a 4% cost but a 6% return, then their spread will be 2% and that'll be their distributable earnings. $2 billion that they are projecting in the near term to be able to accomplish with their insurance operations now. 
Now, the attractive part of this business, according to management, is that those cash flows will be utility-like. They're just recurring, they just keep coming back, and it's low risk and highly scalable and predictable. So, of course, that's music to our ears, and we see why this is such a good fit for the overall Brookfield ecosystem in general, right? Those are the cash flows that they like. Those are the predictable ones. And then they emphasize again that Brookfield reinsurance is going to be a great asset for them for decades. So they're in it for the long run. So yeah, overall, that's kind of my summary of the Brookfield Corporation uh, presentation. Of course, there's a lot more. Like I said, I highly recommend you listen to it. But those were some of the key takeaways for me. Like I said, I've never been more confident in them. I'm so happy that it's my top holding. And I really, really look forward to seeing it compound over time. I'm happy that Bruce is still a young guy, you know what I mean? He's like, what, maybe late 40s, early 50s? So he's got at least another 20 years if he wants to. And I'm very excited to see where Brookfield goes. And on the note I said about not getting married to a stock, the reason I'm so willing to break that rule, at least for Brookfield, is... These guys are so consistent, it's been the same method and strategy for 20 years and counting, right? It's not this type of company where, you know, every couple of years they get a new CEO and then they just totally change strategy, do something new. No, here, their values of being long-term investors, trying to be value investors, and, and you know, trying to make deals in, in areas where they have scale and a competitive advantage, those are values that are ingrained in the company as a whole and that's just part of their identity right so in a way even though i'm married to this stock i'm actually more married to their strategy which i really like and i think generates these great returns now on our final topic my friends a huge huge deal you've probably already heard of it's been announced now uh, quite a few days ago but enbridge the energy giant from canada has announced the acquisition of free utilities from us-based dominion energy this is a very, very big deal. This would make Enbridge North America's largest gas utility platform, serving around 7 million customers. This is a very important deal because it basically really enhances Enbridge's diversification. It has been known for a long time as a primarily liquids pipeline company, right? Transports that horrible oil that everyone hates across the continent, but now Enbridge is becoming a truly diversified energy infrastructure company. Post-acquisition, Liquid's pipelines should only be about half of the business, with the other half being gas transmission and distribution and a tiny bit of renewable power. Now, we're not going to spend too long on this. Um, a lot of really, really informed and, and knowledgeable and smart people have commented both sides. But just to give a quick summary, really, the pro arguments here are firstly what I just said. It diversifies Enbridge, which is good. They're able to acquire these assets at a good valuation. Dominion Energy is kind of struggling. They're trying to get rid of assets. So that, you know, Enbridge is able to buy them at kind of a bargain, which is good. Those assets should be accretive to earnings, meaning that after they acquire them, this will actually contribute positively to their revenues and profits and will help sustain the dividend as well, according to Enbridge management at least. Now on the against side, there's the fact that they are diluting shareholders quite a bit in order to fund this acquisition and they are also taking on more debt, which we don't like to see. Although to be fair, the debt's targets here should stay within their regular target anyway of 4.5 to 5 times um, EBITDA, so that's not too bad on this front. 
So personally, I believe that people who already liked Enbridge before probably like this deal, and people who did not like Enbridge too much probably hate the deal. Um, I liked Enbridge, and I like the deal. I kind of understand the strategic vision here. They are trying to be more into utilities. I like that personally. I think it makes them a safer company, even with the extra debt and the dilution, which we don't like. This is their way of trying to not be obsolete. And, uh, you know, because those gas utilities are going to stay there forever. Another point that's important to note, those are uh, utilities in business-friendly jurisdictions. That actually matters a lot, right? You can, can buy a utility in California. It's not going to be the same as if you buy it in North Carolina or Ohio. So, yeah, I think it's a smart move. The debt sucks, of course. We don't like it, but long-term here, again, strategic vision, right? Long term, I think this is a positive move, move for Enbridge. So I like it, and as a current shareholder of Enbridge, it's, I believe, my 11th or 12th largest holding. You know, I'm, I'm happy with it. And again, this is a long-term position. I'm not holding this hoping to make a quick buck right now. I am holding this to get a nice cash flow, and over time, you know, perhaps in 10 years or 5 years, whatever, sell a little bit for some capital gain, but mostly keep it for the income. This will help sustain the dividends. That's what we're focusing on here, so I like it. Anyhow, my friends, this is all I had to say for today. As always, if you like the podcast, give us a five-star rating. Thank you once again for listening to the Newcomer Investor channel, and I look forward to connecting again with you soon.